0: Tonight, we're going to talk about a season to rejoice, a season to rejoice, and we're in Luke 2, the first seven verses there. This is what we call the Christmas story. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And Father, once again, we need you this evening. We need you to speak to our hearts. We need you to minister to us as only you can. Thank you for the folks who've been faithful to come out to church. And I pray that each would receive a blessing from having been here tonight. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the carols we sing at Christmas time celebrate the joy that the birth of Christ brought by coming to live among us. It was a very dark time in Jewish history when Jesus was born. But God was still working to fulfill the prophecies of the Savior that he would send to redeem mankind. Have you ever noticed how many of the Christmas carols mention the word joy or allude to joy? What child is this? Raise, raise the song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born the babe, the son of Mary. O holy night, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Hark the herald angels sing, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. O come all ye faithful, joyful, And triumphant, O come, O come ye to Bethlehem. God rest ye merry gentlemen, O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. And of course this one, (laughs) joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Until I I was dealing with this, I never really realized that. Never put it all together. Uh, Each of those songs have to do with the joy. Now, the carol Joy to the World was published in 1719 by Isaac Watts. And believe it or not, he did not publish it as a Christmas carol. Uh, He actually, his intent, when he wrote that carol that we call Christmas carol, was to celebrate Christ's second coming. But the song became so popular among Christians during the holiday season that uh, it's become a Christmas carol. Jesus Christ's birth brought joy unspeakable to the world. Now, as I said, when Christ arrived in this world, it was a very dark time in Israel's history, And uh, it seemed like God had almost forgotten mankind. But the fact is this, all the while, God had been orchestrating a plan to eliminate the burden of sin that separates man from God. God had a plan in place, and he was working his plan. At Christmas, perhaps like no other time, we're reminded that no matter what's going on in the world around us, even trying to impeach our president, and no matter what burdens we carry, there's always joy in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 16, verse 11 Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Listen, we're in the Christmas season, and Christmas is about declaring that there's joy to be found because Jesus, whose name is Emmanuel, means God with us, was sent to the earth so we could eternally be with him. So we're going to talk about the season to rejoice. We're going to talk about joy. And the first thing we want to see is the joy in his providence. The joy in his providence. And you know, I, I was checking out that, that word providence and the meaning of providence And very simply, it's the benevolent guidance of God, providence, the benevolent guidance of God. Chapter 2 of Luke begins, and it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. Those days that are mentioned in Luke 2.1 are challenging days for the Jewish people. Rome, the greatest military power in the world, had conquered and was occupying the land of Israel. And as if answering to a foreign power weren't enough, the people had to obey Caesar's edict of taxation. It was hardly a time for joy, especially considering that Joseph and Mary were forced to walk 90 miles from Nazareth, to Bethlehem to pay their taxes, even while Mary was in the last trimester of her pregnancy. Do you ever try to put yourself in Bible characters' place? Here comes this decree. Now Mary's uh, she's approaching that that time, and uh, they know it won't be long. And all of a sudden, here comes this decree from Caesar Augustus, and now they're going to have to travel 90 miles. And they didn't have a bus to get on. They didn't have a car to drive in. Uh, if they were fortunate, and we don't even know this, they may have had a donkey to ride on. 90 miles. If, if, you, if you can't imagine 90 miles, <coughs> figure this. It would be like traveling from here to Harrisburg. That would be right around that. Hmm? How would you like to have to walk that far? And you gals who have had children, how would you like to do it in your third trimester? But that's what's happening here. And uh, we don't have any, anything recorded about how Joseph felt about all this or, or, you know, making that journey or how him and Mary did it, anything of that nature. But I wonder what went through their minds when this first happened. When they first heard, we've we got to make a trip. Well, anyway, it's not a, not a bright time. They're going to have to go to Bethlehem. And uh, God's, we see in, in all of this, though, we see the very providence of God. We see his timely preparation as evidence. Caesar may have been the ruler, but God was still in charge. And we see that here. Regardless of whether you think history is an exciting or sleep inducing subject, what's certain is that God is the author of the story of mankind. Not only did he create the world and everything in it, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God wrote history with the prophecies of the coming of his son. Over 350 times in the Old Testament, prophecies were given concerning Jesus. His birth, his work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. 350 different prophecies on those subjects in the Old Testament. God wrote it all. And of course Isaiah 7:14 is a favorite at Christmas time. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign: behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But you know, God didn't just prophesy the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God also made it happen. In 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. I want you to look at Galatians for just a minute. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Well, we'll get there sooner or later. Galatians 4.4. Four. Are you there? But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the fullness of time was come, you know what that indicates? at the exact time that God had planned and God had prophesied for Jesus to come, he sent him uh, on that night that we read about, the night of his birth. Not only does he orchestrate it, or not only does he organize it and uh, originate history, but he orchestrates history. A fellow named A.T. Peterson, who is what you might call a theologian, said this, history is his story. That's what history is. His story. President James Garfield said it this way. History is the unrolled scroll of prophecy. Listen, he orchestrates history. How wonderful that there was a script written by God long before we were ever born. And all the events of this world, even those we don't understand, are working according to his providential plan for the fulfillment of his will. Listen, everything that's happening and and sometimes it gets we get dismayed when we see what's going on, but it's all going to God according to God's plan or to accomplish God's purposes. God is still in control even when it may seem like he's not. Jeremiah 1:12. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Think about this. Caesar Augustus is the ruler, and he was the most powerful ruler in the known world at this time. His empire was vast, and he ruled his empire with an iron fist. He used his great army to keep order and maintain the Roman roads, among other things that he did. When Caesar issued the imperial order that the entire Roman world pay taxes, he no doubt did it partly to benefit the empire and partly to fill his own pockets. But as another ruler recorded in the scriptures, God holds the king's heart in his hand. See, Augustus, Caesar Augustus thought he was coming up with this and he was doing this in his own way and his own will. God was in control of this, and God is behind it all. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Think about this. God used the edict of Caesar to fulfill his own plan. Now, I'm sure Joseph and Mary had no idea, did not understand all that was going on, or why they had to be in Bethlehem. But according to the prophecies, Joseph and Mary had to be in Bethlehem on that night to have this child. And God made sure they were there. And he used being taxed as a method to get them there. How many of you like taxes? If you would have raised your hand, I would have thought there was something wrong with you. I was over talking to Charlie's dad yesterday, and he reminded me several times he don't like taxes. But here's Mary and Joseph, and a tax was used by God to bring about His plan and purpose of having them in Bethlehem. Uh, listen, the Christ Child had to be born in Bethlehem. Well, why do you say that? Because Micah chapter five verse two had already prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. Behold, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Hmm. Don't don't ever lose sight of this. Nothing that happens in this world can override God's pre-written timetable of biblical prophecies. He is the sovereign. He's in control of it all, even when we don't see him working. God has it all under control, and we just need to trust him. God's sovereignty over history is not seen only in relation to political structures. We see it in our personal problems. Think about the distance from Nazareth to Jerusalem and of Mary's expectant condition— Why would God give them such a problem at an already difficult time in their lives? They're expecting their first child at any time. They were not wealthy people who could afford to make the trip in comfort. Surely there would be dangers on the road to consider as well. Why would God allow difficult situations in their life at that time? Well, we ask that question ourselves about our situations. Why does God allow difficult situations into our lives at a time when we already have enough burdens? Listen, oftentimes God is using difficult situations to lead us to where we need to be in order for his plan and purpose to be fulfilled in our lives. Hmm. Romans 8 and verse 28, and we know, I like the way that verse starts, And we know, we don't think, we don't hope, we don't suppose. We know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Things may have seemed difficult for Joseph and Mary, but God did not allow them to endure this challenge from a desire to see them suffer. Rather, he was allowing them to participate in his plan, leading them to the right place at exactly the right moment. And when we're overwhelmed by trials in our lives, we need to remember God has a plan and a purpose for everything we go through. When we see our trials through his perspective, we can find joy in his providence. Listen, it's a joy to realize that God is in control. And so we see the joy of his providence. Number one, he originates history. We said that. And number two, he orchestrates history. There's joy in his providence. The second thing we want to see is there's joy in his presence. And verses 6 and 7 of Luke 2, I lost Luke 2 here. And it was so that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There's joy in his presence. We see the place that they were to go was already determined. God could have given us anything, but he knew that we knew what we needed most. And so on a long prophesied night in a stable in the town of Bethlehem, he gave his presence. And there's a story about a Persian king. This Persian king was a wise and good man, and he loved his people. And he decided one day he wanted to know his people more personally. He wanted to know how his people lived. He wanted to see their hardships And he wanted to hear about their struggles. So here's what he did. He dressed in the clothes of a working man and began visiting the homes of the poorest people in his kingdom, careful not to reveal his identity as their ruler. I don't mean to be carnal, but it reminded me of undercover boss. How many of you know what that is? Yeah. Become one of them so you can experience what they experience. Well, that's what this ruler wanted to do. On one visit, the king met a very poor man who lived in a cellar. The king asked if he might spend the evening with the man, and the man agreed, sharing his meager dinner and making pleasant conversation. The king later returned to visit the man again and disclosed his true identity, half believing the poor man would ask for some gift or favor to elevate his station in life. But instead, the man thanked his king for taking time to visit him. And here's what the man said to the king. You left your big palace to spend time with me in this dark, dreary place. And that brought gladness to my my heart, said the poor man. To others, you may give rich gifts, but to me, you gave yourself. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He gave himself. The place was determined. Remember that God had foretold not only the time, but the place. We we gave you Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 and how it came to pass. In uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. We don't know why God chose Bethlehem. It seems like in our, I don't know about you, but it seems like in my mind, um, it should have been Jerusalem. Hello. Hello. We look at Jerusalem as the center of the Jewish religion. But God chose something different. He chose Bethlehem. And somebody brought out this fact, and I think it's very interesting. The word Bethlehem means the house of bread. What a fitting place for Jesus Christ to be born, as he's the bread of life. He said in John chapter 6, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. It's interesting that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. So that we might never again be spiritually hungry, but might be eternally fed. We don't know exactly why God chose Bethlehem, but I think that's a pretty good insight there to mull around in our mind. So he was, the place was determined, and then we notice this the Savior was delivered. You know, in a lot of cultures, the traditions that you celebrate the birth of a child with food and gifts. And if you ever go to the hospital, you know those gift shops in the hospital were filled with items like balloons and stuffed animals that you can buy uh, when you're going to go be introduced to a new baby. But as we read the birth of Christ, we don't find any of that. Mary went into labor and delivered Jesus in a stable. Not a clean, sterile hospital room, And after he was born, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And we're told that that's a gauzy type of material, not something most mothers would want to wrap their newborns in. And they were typically used as burial wrappings. There's a significance there as well. Because Jesus was born to die and die in our place. After wrapping him, Mary laid Christ in a manger you know, that word manger is interesting. And of course, we have a manger scene here. And, and this is how we see it. But history tells us it may not have been this way. Oftentimes, the the stables were nothing but holes carved in the, in the, in the uh, walls or uh, rock walls. And it might have been that kind of a stable that he was in. We don't really know. All we know was it was some sort of stable. But he was placed in a manger, which is nothing more than a feeding trough. Again, we don't know if it was made out of wood or if it was a stone thing or just exactly what it was. Uh, so we replicate it to the best of our ability. But we know that he was placed in a feeding trough <clears throat> as his first uh, bed, if you will. He was delivered some people today still have no, uh, well, he was there because he, there was no room for him in the inn, and some people today still have no room for him. Hmm. It's interesting, we're in the Christmas season, and people don't mind decorating their homes with bright lights, they don't, they don't object to putting up Christmas trees and spending money on Christmas gifts but they don't want to personally receive Jesus Christ as their Savior or submit to his leadership in their ways that would change their homes or affect the way they live their lives. They're willing to have this celebration and supposedly celebrating that Jesus had come, but they don't have any room for him. The material man has no room. For some people life is all about how much they can get or how much stuff they can accrue in the shortest time possible. It would be good if these kind of people would be would remember why Christ came in the first place. He came to bring eternal security not to our investment accounts but to our souls. Mark 8:36 For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Some people are about all about material things. They have no room for Christ. And we find that when we're out soul winning, don't we? Hmm? We find many people who have all the material things and they have no room for Christ in their life. Then there's the intellectual man. He has no room for Christ. Some people, they claim they are just too smart to buy into Christianity. They pity Christians believing we need the crutch of religion to get through life. But these who have become so smart that they reject the babe in the manger as the son of God are in reality fools headed for destruction. The Bible says the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. If there's no room for Christ the person is a fool. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, For the preaching of the cross is to them the perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the proven. You know, this is the, I call them the intelligentsia of today. These are the, the so-called uh, brains or thinkers of our day who say there is no god and these are the evolutionists who say that nothing there was no creator everything was was just, just started from a big bang and just happened and they say any of us who believe in the creation account are just ignorant no we're not ignorant we're just full of faith we're just believers we take god at his word So the material man has no room for Christ, the intellectual man has no room for Christ, and the religious man has no room for Christ. Why do you say that? Well, folks who put their trust in a religious system may believe Jesus is part of the equation for eternal life, but they refuse to believe he's the complete answer. There are a lot of religions who have Jesus, but they add something to him. I'm thinking of Roman Catholicism. They will tell you about Jesus, and when I was raised as a Roman Catholic, I was taught that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and was buried and resurrected on the third day. I was taught all that about Jesus. Jesus. But nobody told me I had to receive him as my personal savior in order to have eternal life. They told me I had to make sacraments. I had to go to confession. I had to take the Eucharist. I had to do this and do that. And see, these are people who add religion to Christ. You can't add anything to him, it's Christ and Christ alone. Many material, intellectual, and religious people are filled with the sadness and gloom despite their best efforts to buy or earn joy. No matter how much money they spend to make a good life for themselves and no matter how they try to reason away the existence of God or blindly follow a church's set of rules to be a good person, they are never sure if they've done enough to be able to make it into heaven. Hmm. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Let me say it again. No matter how much money they spend to make a good life for themselves, no matter how they try to reason away the existence of God or blindly follow a church's set of rules to be a good person, they're never sure if they've done enough to be able to make it to heaven. That's why when you ask unsaved people, if you died right now, are you sure you'd go to heaven? They can't say, I'm sure. Sometimes they say, I hope so. Sometimes they say, I think so. But if you ask a saved person that same question, we can say with all confidence, I know so. Hmm? And it's not based on us. It's based on him. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, then the third thing we see is joy and his provision. What was provided for millions and millions of people that day when Jesus was born? Well, the answer, God was provided. He provided himself as the greatest gift the world has ever known. You know, I thought about that, that God was provided when Jesus was born. And I thought about way back in the Old Testament when Abraham and Isaac are heading up to that mountain and Isaac says, I see the wood and I see the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. And that's exactly what we see here. On that night, God provided himself a lamb. We see a personal presentation here. There wasn't some mystical appearance or spirit presence. This was an actual flesh and blood body. This was the actual Son of God in the flesh. Romans 1 and verse 3, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ, who was eternally preexistent, on that night took the form of a man and was personally presented to the world. John 1, 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus put on a physical body, to come to earth and live among us. Paul talks about it over in Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's a personal presentation. God came in person and became a person, Jesus Christ. And then it's a spiritual presentation. He who was the son of Mary was also the son of God. Romans 1 and verse 4. And declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Luke one thirty two, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Colossians 2, 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, And because he was the son of God, he was the only one that could have done the work of redemption on the cross to make possible the gift of God, eternal life, and the forgiveness of sins. When we understand the significance of Christ's presence, we can begin to experience the joy of Christmas and appreciate the joy expressed in the Christmas carols we hold so dear O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. I want to finish with an illustration I've given before. In 1830, a man named George Wilson was convicted and sentenced to be hanged for robbing the U.S. mail. President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for the man, but he refused to accept it. In an effort to free Wilson, his lawyer brought the matter before the Chief Justice Marshall, who was deliberating. And Chief Justice Mar- Marshall came to this. Here's what he said. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Jesus was born to die on the cross because we needed to be saved from the penalty of our sins. That once-for-all payment is sufficient to ensure a pardon from God and the an eternity with him in heaven. Second Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Like Justice Marshall concluded so long ago, the value of a pardon is in its acceptance. God can't make us take advantage of the gift of his forgiveness. We cannot recognize the significance of God with us until we experience the reality of Christ in us. Once we invite him in, we will know the joy of the Lord and we'll be able to give thanks for his unspeakable gift. When you know Christ personally, Christmas is indeed a time to rejoice. and thank God for him. Father, thank you that we can rejoice because the Savior's come. Your, your plan, the plan that you laid out before eternity passed, your plan unfolded and, and that night culminated in the birth of the Savior. But there was more to be done. He had to live that sinless life and he had to die on Calvary's cross. He had to be buried and resurrected on that third day. And thank you that Christ fulfilled every bit of it. Just as you said he would. And now all who believe in him and trust him and put their faith in him can have eternal life. Truly, it's a reason for us to sing about the joy of Christmas, the joy celebrating that the Savior has come. Help us never to forget it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, you're dismissed.